Uh, so, June 24th, 2018. Where were you? Anybody got that gift they can remember where they were on any given date? No? Okay. Well, I was right about here, and some of you were right about there. And we started uh, on that date this series uh, looking at the church in Ephesus. And it started in 2018, and we're finishing it today. So we didn't know how long it was going to take when we started, and about two years is the answer you've all been waiting for. Um, so we started uh, by looking in the book of Acts when Paul first established this church in the city of Ephesus um, around the year 53. And it started with, um, oh, Ephesus has a nice red line underneath it. That's the east, western end of Turkey. Um, so uh, it started with this initial group of about 12 people. Uh, and Paul stayed there in that city and he taught for about three years. And the gospel took such firm hold in that city um, that it ended up changing the, the economics of the city, right? Uh, one of the primary businesses that went on in Ephesus was the manufacture of these of silver idols, of silver statues of, of the goddess Diana, I think. Um, and, and the gospel took such root that demand for those statues just evaporated. It just dried up. Nobody wanted to buy them anymore. And so the, the people who made those statues for a living ended up starting a riot. Um, and Paul left the city shortly thereafter. Uh, now, he, as he was traveling by a few years later, he met with um, the Ephesian elders. Um, they sort of met each other halfway, and, and we have this recorded in, in Acts 20. And he said to them in part, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, after that meeting in Acts 20, Paul returned to Jerusalem uh, and was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And after appealing his case to Caesar, he was sent to Rome, where he lived under house arrest, awaiting his audience with the emperor. Uh, and so during that time, in about the year 60, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, which was a letter back to the church there in Ephesus. And he, write, and he writes to encourage the church and to remind them of the glorious plan that God had for them. How from the beginning of time, God had planned to adopt them as sons and daughters, being raised from being dead in their sins to being made alive in Christ. And so because they are now in Christ, there is this extraordinary unity that, call, that, that they are called to, this miraculous unity that stretches across racial or ethnic and social and economic lines, demonstrating to a world that who we are in Christ, when we are in Christ, we are more alike than any demographic group that we might belong to. And since we have been made new in Christ, we must walk 
differently. We must put off the old man and put on the new man. And as we do that, we live lives that demonstrate to people the power of the gospel. As the gospel invades our actions, our marriages, our relationships with our kids and our parents, our bosses and our employees, we demonstrate to others the supreme excellence of Jesus Christ by how our lives are transformed and conformed to his image more and more every day. Also during that time, while Paul was in prison, uh, he sent uh, a young man named Timothy to Ephesus to lead the church there and to counter false teaching within the church. And so we have the book of 1 Timothy, which was the first letter that Paul wrote to encourage Timothy in this work. Uh, and the letter was sent to encourage Timothy to stand strong in his faith, holding fast against the false teachers and those who have strayed from the faith. He gives him instructions on how to structure the church, what it looks like to, to build up new leaders who will be able to shepherd this church into the next generation of believers. And he tells him, uh, as he closes the letter out, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, and to fight the good fight of the faith. Now, after writing that letter, uh, sometime after it, Paul was released and he continued to go about the, the, the Roman Empire preaching the gospel. And it continued to get him in trouble. Uh, and so he lands in prison again for preaching the gospel. And that was where he wrote the letter of 2 Timothy that we finished up last week. Um, so he was um, not under house arrest this time, but he was in a prison. He was waiting for his death. And he reminds Timothy not to be ashamed of the faith that they shared and to not shrink back from preaching the word. Now, Paul doesn't shrink back. He doesn't try and avoid this tough road that he has to walk. But he reminds Timothy that, that it's worth it. Whatever it costs, it's worth it because Christ is worth it. And because it's worth it to see those people who are far away from God be brought near by the power of the gospel. And he also directly addressed some of the problems of the time, saying that people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, treacherous, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now that list was written about the year 67, right? But it's just as true, and if not even more true today than it was then. But what, what was the antidote? What was the solution that Paul gave to that madness? He said, the word of God, the scripture, because it has been breathed out by God to teach us who God is, and what he has done for us, and how we should respond to him. And so if the word, if the word of God is the antidote to the insanity of that culture, then the call that Paul gives to Timothy is absolutely crystal clear. It says in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But despite the power of this charge and the confidence that Paul has in his Savior, 
he acknowledges that his life is at an end. And sometime after that, Paul is beheaded there in Rome. In the years to come, uh, persecution increases. The city of Jerusalem falls once more to uh, a Roman army. And uh, on towards the year 90, the emperor begins to demand that he be worshipped as a god. And this causes some problems with the Christians, right? They refuse, by and large, to worship the emperor. One of the Christians that, uh, that refuses to do this is the Apostle John, who at that point had settled in Ephesus as his, uh, as his base of operations. And John is exiled from Ephesus to this little tiny island called Patmos, um, which is just a little speck there if you're sitting way in the back. <laughs> um, and so while he is there, around the year 95, he has this vision from God that we have contained in the book of Revelation. Now, there's, there's a lot of absolutely beautiful and terrible imagery there, uh, some of which um, inspire that song that we just sang. Uh, and so there's lots that we can see and that we can understand and that we can be encouraged by. And, that, and there's a lot in there that is kind of difficult for us to understand. Um, but the piece that we're going to look at today uh, contains the last specific mention of the church in Ephesus in the Bible, which will close out our, our study of that church. Uh, now, the introduction to the book of, of Revelation is the whole of the first chapter, and I can't introduce it any better than John did, so we're just going to read the whole first chapter together. So this is Revelation 1. Uh, if you have one of the ESV Pew Bibles, it's on page 1028. Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So Christ is visiting John in this vision and will proceed to dictate letters to these seven churches of of Asia Minor, of of Turkey, represented by these seven lampstands, the first of which is the church in Ephesus. Uh, Now we are going to read this today uh, just exactly as what it says it is, a letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus in 95 AD. Now, there's a lot of interpretation that can happen here that says that, um, that, the, that there are additional layers of meaning, but we're not get, going to get into that today. We're just looking at the literal understanding that this is a letter to this church. So picking up in, in chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there are, some, there are some words here, right? Endurance, tested, uh, rejected false teachers, not grown weary, hating what is evil, holding fast to what is good. These are the things that Paul was so concerned about with this church, right? This, this is what he said when he met with them. This is what he said to Timothy 20 years before. And so Timothy had been successful. Timothy had, had succeeded in what he was sent to do. And he had taught the whole church to faithfully pursue right doctrine, right teaching, and to reject false teachers. But while they had held fast to those convictions, to that teaching, they had swung the pendulum a little bit too far, right? We we do this as people. We just do it, right? We we say, okay, I'm going to eat better. And so we, we... drastically change our diets and we eat just lettuce for like a week, right? And everything works out beautifully. I mean, we're feeling great, we're losing weight, 
and then you fall off the wagon. And you don't just fall off the wagon a little. I mean, you're like whole tub of ice cream by yourself, right? I mean, you swing back and forth like a pendulum. Or exercise, right? You spend all winter sitting on the couch, and so, you, okay, I'm going to go to the gym twice a day, and we're going to get, I'm going to get so fit that it, it hurts, and it lasts for what, like two days, and then you go back to sitting on the couch, right? It's a pendulum. We do this. So they have taken a good thing. They've taken a good thing, exercise, eating right, work. They've taken a good thing and made it into the ultimate thing. Uh, they had taken this, this right thinking, this right doing, um, this orthodoxy and orthopraxy are the $10 words. You can write those down. I should have put them on the bingo card. Um, this right thinking and this right doing, and they had made that into the ultimate thing. And in doing so, they had abandoned the love that they had at first. Now, what was this love that they had at first? What did that, what did that look like? Uh, if you want to turn back to Acts 19, um, as the gospel is taking root there in Ephesus, we, we have this, this tremendous response in the hearts of the people in Acts 19, uh, starting in verse 18, where it says, And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their, their practices, their, their evil practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So these are people who are so enraptured with God. They love God so much that they are willing to leave behind anything that could distract them or compete for their love. They burned $6 million worth of occult books and scrolls. And in doing so, they demonstrated that they valued and they loved God more than their occult practices, more than they loved their possessions, more than anything else in their world. So this was the depth and the strength of the love that they had at first. But they've abandoned it, right? They've lost that love in favor of what one author said is a, is a cold, mechanical orthodoxy. Now, we do need to understand that, that right belief, knowing the truth, and then right action, doing the right thing, are important. Right? That, that's critically important for us. But that right belief and that right action needs to be motivated by right loves. Because if we don't have our love directed in the right direction, then we can get everything else right and still miss out. We can still miss the point. Uh, the Apostle John wrote in, in 1 John 4, 8, that anyone who does not love, anyone who does not love, does not know God. Because God is love. Now when we use that to understand one of the uh, stories that, that Jesus tells, it's a, it, it helps us to, to see the reality of this situation. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, so on, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these are people who have done all of the right external things, but there was still something that they lacked. They lacked any sort of real knowledge, heart knowledge of who God was, and they lacked the love that results from knowing that. So our faith begins with a knowledge of who God is. He is holy. He is perfect. He is just. He is the creator and sustainer of everything on this earth, including you and me. And he deserves to be worshipped with absolutely everything that we have and everything that we are because of who he is. But we have rebelled against that worship. We have rebelled, holding up other things, idols, statues, Mother Earth, and ultimately ourselves as being the ultimate thing for us to worship. Because we have worshipped something less than the only one who is worth worshiping, because we have rebelled against his divine rule, we are cosmic traitors and rebels deserving of death. However, God the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect and sinless life that we never could, and to die the death that we deserved, taking our place so that we could be reconciled with God, so that the rebellious son or daughter, so that you or I could return home and be welcomed, and be welcomed with open arms. Now, once we know that, if we understand the depths of our sin and the heights of his grace and his mercy towards us, we respond. We will always respond in some way to the gospel. Now, we might respond by rejecting him, choosing to reject his love and worship a God of our own making. Or we respond by loving God for who he is and what he has done for us. This is why in Matthew 22, Jesus, um, when he was asked what the, what the greatest commandment in all of the law was, uh, he answered in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So the single most commandment or the single most important commandment in all of the Bible is that we are to love God. And when you love someone, you grow in relationship with them. You come to know what they love and what they hate. And over time, as that relationship grows, you will grow to love what they love and hate what they hate. So as we grow to love God, then that, then that creates in us, that births in us, this hatred of sin, because God hates sin. We will grow to hate sin as we grow to love God. We will want to leave it behind. We'll want to turn away from it. We'll want to repent of it because we love God, and God hates that sin. But the love of God carries over into another area, right? Jesus continued. So after the first great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God, he says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now John, again in John 4, gives the, the reason or the motivation behind this. Um, when he writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So just as God loves us, because God loves us so 
so perfectly, then we are to imitate that love in how we love one another. So we don't just love the people who are, um, who are similar to us or, or whom we aspire to be like or who are easy to love because we're not easy to love, right? Can I get an amen from anybody? <laughs> we are not easy to love. But the, um, and, and that's what Paul wrote about in Romans 5 when he said, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we still hated God, Christ died for us. So the love that God has shown us and the love that we are called to exhibit to one another is a love that takes the first step, that takes the initiative, that loves the difficult, that loves the unlovable, the sinner, the rebel, the traitor, not for an ulterior motive or not for what they can give back to us, but we are called to love with the same self-sacrificial, undeserved love that God has given to us. And so our desire, our motivation for doing the right thing and believing the right thing, then it has to flow out of that love for God and a love for others. But what happens if we get that motivation wrong? like what happened in Ephesus? What happens if we do not have the love that we are called to have? Well, ultimately, you know, our hearts have to love something. And if we don't love God, and if we don't love others, most of the time, in our pride and our arrogance, we end up loving ourselves, right? We think that we are the best things. We are the thing that is most deserving of worship. And that ends up leading to this belief that, hey, you know, I'm a pretty good person, right? And so I, if I just do enough good, if I just work a little bit harder, if I just believe the right things, then I'm going to be all right in God's eyes. Or, you know, I'm not so bad, really, but if I do a little bit better, then, I can, then I'll be better than the people around me. All of this is based on this underlying belief that, that if we're just good enough, if we just work harder, if we just try harder, if we just do better, then we will be able to earn God's love. Now, if that is true, if we earn God's love by doing good, then that allows us to see everybody else around us as just not trying hard enough, right? The addict, the adulterer, the liar, the cheat. Well, they're just not trying hard enough. They're not trying as hard as I am. And so I'm better than them because I'm working harder. I'm getting this right. They're getting this wrong. And when we take that, when we take that point of view, that, that allows us to look down on somebody and to despise them, right? And if we're despising them, we're not loving them. Paul wrote about this in, in 1 Corinthians 13, right? You, you see this all the time in, in weddings. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
So if I can do all of these amazing, spectacular, wonderful things, and if I sacrifice myself, body and soul, but don't have that rightly ordered love of God and of others, then it's pointless and it's meaningless. So this attitude, this despising of another person, devoid of love and compassion would be understandable. It would be understandable for us to have that attitude. And maybe even right if, if there was some way that we could earn our way into the, into the kingdom, into heaven. However, the standard that is demanded by God's perfection and holiness the standard that we need to achieve to earn our way into the kingdom is just that. It is perfect holiness. Matthew 5.48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is a problem for us. This is a problem. It's a problem for me. I'll speak for myself. We are called to be perfect, and we can't ever hope to achieve that. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are deserving of eternal destruction as a consequence of that. But rather than earning God's love, what the Bible teaches us is that we cannot earn it. And it is a gift that is freely given. It's not wages that are earned. It's not a reward that's deserved. But we are loved by God simply because he chose to love us. His love is a gift to us, given freely. And we are then expected to give away what we have been given. We have been given the love of God, and so we give it freely back to God. And we give it freely out to those around us. We don't get God's love because we pray and we read our Bibles, or come to church, or give away money, or vote a certain way. But we are given God's love because He simply chose to give it to us as an undeserved gift. And that is what, friends, that is what the church in Ephesus had forgotten. And that is what we are prone to forget. What was the consequence? Right? What, did, what did Christ say was a, a consequence if they did not repent of that? If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So they will have their lampstand removed. They will lose their standing as a church of Jesus Christ. So we are not a church just because we gather together here on Sunday mornings. We are not a church just because we all say the right things or know the right things. We are not a church because we do the good things and don't do the bad things. But we are a church because we have collectively acknowledged that God is so wonderful. He is so powerful. He is so beautiful and so merciful that we cannot do anything other than love him. And out of that love for God flows this beautiful and wonderful love for other people. And that love for other people, is how Jesus said the world would know that we are his disciples. In John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
So if we are loving God and loving others in the way that Jesus tells us that we should, then even an unbelieving world, even a world that is hostile to the gospel, will see that we belong together with our Savior and with one another. But if we fail to have our love rightly ordered, if we fail to love God and fail to love others, then perhaps our lampstand will be removed. Maybe the building remains. Maybe people still come. But without a deep and abiding love for who God is, then it is an empty, cold, and ultimately pointless exercise that is without meaning, without value, and without purpose. So if this morning you have thought that by doing good things, by learning the right things, by knowing the right things, you could earn your way into the kingdom. The call is clear. Repent. Repent. Do not have your lampstand removed. If you thought that you are better than your brother or sister because you have acted differently than them, repent and place your faith in the finished work of Christ. Trust in the work that Christ already did on the cross for you and for your brother or sister. Because he has done everything that needed to be done to make us right with our Heavenly Father. And we are simply called to trust that his work was enough. It was enough. It did everything that was required. And we should not try to do it again on our own, under our own power. So as you trust in, as you rely on the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then you will come to understand why it is that he is worthy of your love and why it is that you should desire and seek to love others as he loves you. And as we together grow in our love for God and in our love for others, then that orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right knowing and right doing, will follow as a result of those rightly ordered loves. Let's pray together. Father, it is... It can be difficult for us to trust in Christ's work. God, we have, this, we have this sinful bent in our hearts that we want to try and earn it. We want to try and deserve it. We want to try and say that there's something special about us that, that, that warrants that sort of love, that sort of sacrifice. But God, there isn't. There is only your love. Your love poured out in the blood of your only Son on our behalf, in our place, taking our sin and our shame. God, this is not something that we deserved. This is not something that we earned. This is what you have given us. So, Father, we ask that, that you would be at work in our hearts, helping us to love you rightly in response to that helping us to love others in response to that. God, and as, we, as you teach us to love you rightly, as you teach us to love others correctly, 
God, we ask that, that you would show us through your word and through your spirit and through your people what it means, what that looks like, how to do that. But God, we repent of trying to do that on our own power. God, we repent of the, the pride and the arrogance that makes us think that, that, we can look our, that we can make ourselves look better in your eyes. And Father, we ask and we pray that you would cleanse us of our sin, that you would forgive us, that you would give us the courage to repent and follow hard after you for as long as you have ordained our days here on this earth. We love you, and we praise you this morning. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. stand with me as we close this morning as we sing the doxology as we contemplate what has been shared with us from God's word this morning as we go from here may we go with his peace praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace.